As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, and from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And of course, from The Athletic, here is Phil Hay. Hello. Happy New Year to you both. You can get signed up for The Athletic right now. 33% off the full price of a sob, full analysis, in-depth features. Phil's on there and the very best team of football writers around. You will also get ad-free versions of all these podcasts as well. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. If you want to, what we got for the new year, Phil? There's a piece this week on the Bielsa and Quiroga hug, a piece on Joe Gelhart as well, and a longer read on Adam Forshaw, who looks like he might be heading for a new contract at Leeds. Okay, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to read all that to get yourself signed up for The Athletic. And into it then, here we are in the new year. And when we signed off just before Christmas, things were a little bit, not tense, but there was there was a bit of fear had crept in, hadn't it? We, we ranked the season out of 10 and we said it was a, a three out of 10 at that point. Isn't it amazing what a win can do? And a couple of postponed games as well. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say um, the right postponements at the at the right time, especially that Boxing Day game at Anfield. I don't think any of us. I don't think. I don't think even you, Dan, predicted anything from that. And it was going to be a very early start for people. It was going to be one of those trips that was probably going to be a little reminiscent of City at the Etihad, and it just seemed to be what everybody was needing—a little bit of an interlude. I didn't see anybody complaining online about the fact that the Liverpool game had gone. I didn't see too many people complaining about the Villa game going either, aside from the poor people who seemed to have flown in from the States for it. But um, them's the breaks, unfortunately. It was a good chance to refresh, a good chance to draw breath, a good chance for a few injured players to get themselves back. And it did make a difference against Burnley. I think everybody felt a bit more sprightly. I thought the crowd were very, very lively again. Players looked good. Performance was, was decent exactly what was needed and actually I think from Burnley's point of view they wouldn't have minded a postponement on on January the 2nd but wasn't to be for them. Table's looking a lot healthier as well the eight point gap I think is is starting to look more significant now we've reached the halfway mark. The thing about the league was it was only ever going to take a handful of good results for Leeds to completely change the, the complexion of it. The one thing that's never happened to them is that they've never got sucked into the bottom three. They've never lost touch with the teams above them and they've always had a little bit of a gap and and a little bit of breathing space. And it did mean that when you get into games like Sundays against Burnley, which which was a a classic six-pointer, you win that game and it it does make a huge difference. And I think eight points is a big gap in the context of how the table looks. You've got three teams at the bottom who are struggling desperately to win games. Norwich, who can't score goals. 
And they don't look particularly well equipped to cut a margin like eight points in, in any short period of time. I think Newcastle will get better if Newcastle have a decent window. And, and as we speak, they seem like they're about to do Trippier from um, Atletico Madrid. And I think they will do other signings as well. I'm not convinced that you'll see a huge change in Watford, Burnley or Norwich in the second half of the season. And I think Leeds are in a position now where they, they have the opportunity to stretch that gap. And actually, if you look at the results, they've been good against the sides that they needed to be good against. They've taken points from the teams around them, points from the teams below them. And that is why at this stage, despite everything, they're, they're in a good position to stay up. Did you feel the significance of it then towards the end of the game against Burnley? It felt like, you know, in that Dan James header arced in painfully, painfully slowly, that it was a huge moment of release. And that was the proper trigger for, we've done this. It was. And and I saw straight away the hug between Bielsa and Quiroga on the touchline, just because it was in, in my eye line. I was, I was looking towards that, that end of the pitch. And it was the thing that everybody was speaking about afterwards, because you don't often see that with Bielsa. His, his staff, it seems to me, know to keep the distance from him. They don't jump all over him. They don't tend to celebrate with him when goals go in. He, he does his his own thing. I watched the game down at Swansea that just about sealed promotion. I watched him right the way through that game. We did a piece on him in, in the dugout. And when Hernandez scored, that was properly crossing the, the threshold that give or take a few more points. But you kind of knew at that point or you, you felt it in your bones. He kind of clenched his fist, wiped his nose, turned away. And that was that. And the only time I can think of anybody moving to give him a hug was Quiroga at Rotherham a couple of weeks after the, the Spygate debacle. And that had been two weeks for Bielsa of having to kind of defend his integrity and defend his character and, and to fight fires and, and deal with a lot of criticism that was coming, coming his way. And you looked at that hug and, and you read into it that he'd had a difficult fortnight and his staff knew it had been difficult for him and, and that win meant a lot, a lot to him. It's been very obvious that this season has been hard for him. And from time to time, there's a little bit of martyrdom with Bielsa in that he, he tends to, more often than not, and, and almost exclusively blame himself for the things that go wrong. And He's done that week after week, latterly, when, when the results haven't been good. You know, I haven't been able to find the solutions. I haven't been able to fix the problems. I knew what was coming, but I wasn't able to, to plan for it in a way that, that worked. But there's no martyrdom when it comes to how he wants to be perceived. I don't think he, he likes to be seen as a manager under pressure. I don't think he likes his teams, well, he doesn't like his teams to be seen as teams who are struggling or, or teams who aren't playing well. And he knows that the results haven't been good enough. He knows that the, the position in the league isn't good enough either. And that hug at the end, which seemed to go on forever, it was quite passionate, really. And I, I think it did tell you that he's had a hard time this season. And he, you know, we had that press conference two or three weeks back where people were asking him outright, do you think you're going to be sacked? And I did think those questions totally misjudged the mood at Ellen Road. Because if you go to the stadium, there just is no tone of that at all in the stands, no tone of that in the boardroom either. It's, it's really, really supportive of him. But I think he knows that as he put it, you know, he thinks his own performance this season has been negative. That's how he described it. And I think everybody saw at the time that that result made a huge difference to how the table looked, how it felt, and could potentially make a huge difference to the second half of the season, which nobody wanted to be the same as the first half. It felt a little bit like that hug was for everyone as well. It was it was him telling us and us telling him, everything's going to be all right, isn't it? This is fine now, isn't it? We seem, we seem to have created a gap. It's over is the bad bit. And he, he waved to the crowd as well, didn't he? before the game when they were singing his name so there's so much love and support in there for him and I think it, it is the response from the crowd singing his name is very pointed it's about saying we believe in this he's always always appreciated the, the support that he's had 
And I think he realises that the support that he's had goes way beyond what the average manager gets at, at the average club and actually goes way beyond what the average manager at Leeds has ever had here either. It, it has been completely different. It's been totally, totally unique relationship, which I don't expect to be replicated ever, I don't think. It's not to say that other managers won't be popular, but I can't see there being the same kind of aura or, or the same kind of understanding between the people in the stands and, and your man in, in the dugout. and. I sort of look at that sometimes and I think to myself, when this all ends for Bielsa, there is part of me that hopes that this is his kind of last hurrah and this is his, his finale because it's hard to imagine him going anywhere else, going to another club where he'll be treated in the same way. And I do think there's a risk of him going to clubs where he'll end up being treated abysmally because it won't work for him, the performances won't quite click, the players won't buy into it, but it, you know, it... It just won't fall into place and therefore the supporters won't appreciate the football and perhaps will struggle to understand or appreciate the idiosyncrasies that we've all warmed to and that are treated quite affectionately around here. It seems like this would be a, a great finish for him, but I still look at him and I still listen to him and I wonder when the day will come when he feels like he can he can live without football in his life because he doesn't seem like he's ready. Does it feel to you, and I don't know, maybe am I being a bit premature with this, that there was a almost a symbolic kind of steady emergence from this this difficult period that we've had over Christmas and you know the fates conspired in a positive way to mean that we avoided the Liverpool game in particular on Boxing Day at that moment probably when we just needed it uh, and then this win kind of built on the break and if we are coming out of this this difficult period will this period of adversity stand us in better stead for the second half of the season? It certainly should do and it takes the pressure off just having that, that little gap there were differences on on Sunday as well, I, I thought the substitutions worked, which is something that I wouldn't have said has, has been true of Bielsa more recently. There have been games where it just hasn't happened for him, where, where what he's tried to do hasn't paid off. But Gilhart made a, a huge difference coming on. And I mean, Gilhart fascinates me. I, I don't think I've ever seen a crowd react to a substitution in the way that they did to that one on, on Sunday. And you're talking about a 19-year-old player who is clearly exceptionally talented and, I mean, very, very special. But 19-year-old who has only played, you know, a handful of games in the Premier League, but has always been treated as if him coming on is like a goal start. There are always players at Leeds who are favourites of the crowd, players that they like, players who they want to come off the bench. But he falls into that really rare category of, of player who, just by pulling his top off, creates this kind of electricity. And every time he, he touches the ball... And that did that did help to turn the game. I thought Dan James was really effective coming on. I, th- I thought Firpo had probably his, his best game yet. And again, you like to think that Leeds are kind of coming through this this difficult period, but also perhaps Firpo is starting to find his feet. Perhaps Dan James is going to hit a little run of form where he's, he's consistently impressive. It could and it should be better the second half of the season. And I've always felt right the way through that Leeds are not playing as well as they can. It's not the case that this is as good as this squad are. They they are better than this. It's just you get to the stage eventually where you feel like you're using that as a as an excuse for results too often. It's funny, you know, when um, when that raw went up for for Gelhart, my instinct was to look over at the Burnley fans because they'd equalised not long before that. They were having a little sing song at our expense. Our crowd had gone quiet for five minutes, and the transformation it was like flicking a switch, wasn't it? Like the the whole ground just lifted, and it almost seemed to spread round the ground. Did that that anticipation and, and that cheer. It's like proper hairs on the back of your neck standing up stuff, isn't it? But I think it's a, it's a perfect demonstration of like the wisdom of crowds. Like everybody who's there understands that he's a really rare talent, I think. And, and it's justified as well that he will come on and do something because the stats show it. He wins penalties, he assists, he scores, he's 
ridiculously good for someone who's played such a small amount of games with no real right to expect someone to come on and change games in the way he does I don't think this is it the the expectancy on him is absurd but he looks like he's in his element with that amount of expectancy on him he seems like he loves it and he he just doesn't seem to care remotely about who it is he's playing against I thought that down at, down at Chelsea I had a, a good look this week at his kind of best bits and particularly the penalties and, and the assist on Sunday and the goal down at Chelsea and I mean, he's got kind of everything in his game. He's he's quick enough. He's got very, very good feet. His balance when he's moving at full speed is, is amazing. It makes him very difficult to defend against. But he's so good at taking up space, at finding gaps for himself. And as soon as he finds gaps, that's when everything cuts loose. And that's when essentially defences have made the mistake of not negating his ability at the first opportunity. And suddenly he's just able to do what he wants. And, and he is almost impossible to, to defend against when he, when he does get going. And at 19, again, if, if Leeds get through to the end of the season safely, the benefit for him of having played like this and having been used as Bielsa's used him, not, you know, not being blooded game after game because the crowd want him to play, but used in the way that Bielsa thinks he should be used, it could be incredibly good for him. Are we using him properly, do you think? Or do you think he should, is there an argument to say he should have just started on the weekend? I don't think Tyler Roberts had a bad game on Sunday. I accept that that finish in the first half was terrible. Although I think for what it's worth, he would have been offside anyway. We were looking at the replay and I think he just strayed too far. So I don't think that that would have counted. But I didn't feel like Roberts had a poor game. And I did think he contributed to what was a a pretty good first half. I think that if we're being totally honest, there's a different level of quality in Gilhart compared to Roberts. There's no doubt about that. And I think actually at 19, there's a different level of quality in Gilhart compared to a lot of players of of his age and, and comparable position. So I could see the argument for using him more and there have been times where I've wanted to see him use more. But given that he has won two penalties, he's, he's had that assist, he's, he's scored in that game down at Chelsea. I don't think you can say he's been used badly or being used in, in the wrong way. I think there are other coaches who would probably use him differently. But if Leeds are going to finish mid-table, and that's as much, I think, as any of us can, can hope for this season and, and as much as anybody should be looking for, then I really don't see the harm it's going to do him to be in and out regularly to be having regular chances without necessarily um, featuring all the time. And I think it goes without saying that at the point where Bamford is fit, Bamford will come back into the team. And that's, to my mind, fair enough because Bamford has has earned that over a a period of time. But when you speak to Bielsa about transfers, you get into the subject of budgets and money and and, you know the sort of players he would like to sign. But he always makes the point that if Leeds want the 23s to develop, if they want him to use the 23s to any extent, then the squad kind of needs to be as it is. I, I, doesn't, I don't think it needs to be this thin. I don't think anybody else does either, apart from Bielsa perhaps. But if you want the 23s to come through and if you want Gelhard to, to get games, you don't sign another centre-forward. Otherwise, what do you do with that centre-forward? And I do understand the rationale. He, he's, on the one hand, trying to keep leads up, um, and I think he will this season. But on the other hand, he's trying to make sure that when he goes, he's developed and pushed some of the 23s to the point where they're basically first-team players or thereabouts and are good enough to be used by any other coach coming in. And it is a really hard balance and it is an incredibly difficult job. But Gilhart, I think, is becoming an example of how it should go for a young player if they're used properly. When Bamford is back, do you see any scope for both Gilhart and Bamford being on the pitch at the same time? Because I know we don't ever tend to do it. And do you think he could play more with Drawn or Bamford could or... 
I think Gilhart could. I don't think it'll happen straight away. I think you'll see Bamford come back in and Gilhart go to the bench. Um, but Gilhart looks to me like he's got the physique and the attitude and the engine to be able to play as a Bielsa 10, to be able to do the defensive work that needs to be done, but also to to have a, an attacking edge to him. I mean, that cross for Dan James was an absolute beauty. I mean, it's just perfectly on the on the button. And again, just created by Gilhart going wide, Burnley having to retreat rapidly, him sidestepping Westwood, and nobody being able to recover in time to stop him just pinging that into the box. He's a um, massive, massive talent. And as I say, I, I just don't see the way he's been managed at the moment. I don't see it doing any harm at all. And would you class him now as a first team player rather than a 23? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, if you've watched him in the 23s, and I said this in the, the piece that I wrote this week, it's almost looked like a doddle for him. It looks almost too easy. And it's no bad thing to keep him fit and to keep him in shape and, and ticking over. But I think he needs to be pushed more. And um, the first time I wrote about Gilhart, I spoke to Nick Chadwick, who was the the ex Everton striker. People probably remember him. He was kind of touted as the the next Rooney in the way that people always are. He went to Wigan and worked in the the academy, and, and he said the thing about Gilhart was he never had difficult moments because no matter how much he pushed him, he just coped with it. I think the phrase he used was that adversity never seemed to find Gilhart, and you're seeing it again at the moment. You know, he's he's been bombed into this team. And he's just coming up with things. He's coming up with goals. He's coming up with penalties. He's he's doing what needs to be done. And it's looking, I wouldn't say it's looking easy for him, but he's looking very, very comfortable. And he looks like he, he's enjoying it massively. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't see much sense in him dropping back to the 23s full time. And just drawing that comparison with um, Tyler Roberts, you feel like his position in the team, his ability, and stuff, it's a bit of a struggle for him. And when I say struggle, I mean like in the fact that he's having to work really, really hard. I don't mean he's finding it difficult. I mean, it's just having to work really, really hard and having to overcome adversity to try and make the grade at this level. Whereas with Gelhart, it just looks like it's an absolute doddle, doesn't it? Like it's just coming perfectly naturally to him. And psychologically, that must be quite difficult if you're Roberts. You know, you, you're to an extent fighting the crowd, although again, and I've, I've repeated myself on this so many times on, on the podcast this season, I think the crowd have been really supportive of everybody. You know, Roberts included. I don't feel like the pressure on Roberts is coming from the 36,000 people in the stadium. I think they are being patient with him. And I think they can see in certain games the good things that he's doing. But there is going to be a, a transition here in that if Gilhart keeps going like this, he is going to be a main player at some point. And, and that will push other people to the sidelines. I, I think as well, I was looking at James when he came on and, and the impact he was having. And one great ball across the box just looked to me like there was a bit more end product there, a, a bit more dangerous. And... A little bit like Firpo, you sort of sympathise with these guys that you you need time. I mean, Firpo at, at Barcelona, by all accounts, and from what you hear, and he's kind of said this himself, hardly trained in comparison to what they do at Leeds. You know, it just wasn't the same amount of, of, of hours put into it. It wasn't the same intensity. So it stands to reason that when you come to Leeds, you're going to find it potentially quite difficult. It, it's not going to be a sort of immediate adaptation where you just slide into the team and, and are absolutely exceptional. And I, I got a tweet when Cornet scored that free kick, which was an absolute peach. And, and yet, you know, the wall could have done better and Millie got beat at his post. But that was a cracking finish. You know, it was a really, really good goal. And somebody tweeted me and said, why did we pay £25 million for James when we could have had Cornet for £30 million? And that, I think, is quite a, a modern attitude of player does one amazing thing and suddenly we should have signed him rather than somebody else. There's a great piece by Michael Cox a few weeks back on The Athletic where he was talking about the speed at which people judge new signings these days. And I do think it's, to an extent, it's kind of got got out of hand. And 
I guess the point he, he was trying to make was that, and, and one of the things that I see is that less and less people say to you, this player is shit, we shouldn't have signed him. This player is no good. But people are inclined to, to give it a few games and then say, do you know what? We should have spent our money differently. I'm not saying he's a bad player, but we could have spent our money on somebody else. And actually, looking at James on Sunday, I started to think it's maybe just starting to come from him. And there's nothing to say that further down the line, he's not going to be a very, very good signing. He was £25 million because he's British, because he was Man United, because that's the kind of premium that gets put on them. But he could be good. Furpo playing like he did on Sunday, admittedly against Burnley, you know, no denying that, but he could be good. Maybe it does just all need a bit of time. On our other podcast, we were listening to some uh, Man United fans saying that Sancho's had enough chances now and that, that he needs to be out of the team as well. So it just goes to show you can you can throw a lot of money in the bin very quickly. And he's, and he's started 10 games. That was the other thing we worked mm. out. Yeah, 10 games and he's been written off at that price. That's it. And as I say, you, you'll less and less see people saying he's a woeful player. It's all about, oh, we could have spent our money differently. So Cornet sticks in a free kick and suddenly, oh, we should have spent £30 million on him. But what's to say you wouldn't have spent £30 million on, on, on him and he'd be, he'd be going through exactly the same process that, that James is going through. For what it's worth, I think he is a very good player and I think Burnley have got an excellent sign in there. He, he, looks, he looks cracking. But the free kick aside, I thought James had the better game on Sunday. When it comes to signings, then we are into the window. Any news, Phil, etc. It's your favourite time of the year, isn't it? Yes, you did. Uh, I did make a did, point of... Te- was it te- I texted what's you to say? Yes. At midnight. <laughs> the, the transfer window is open. Hooray. And inevitably, within about two days, Nandez from Calgary had been linked. Um, <laughs> what a surprise. It, it had to, Mind had, you, he's, he's, in, he's in trouble back in Uruguay, isn't he, potentially? Yeah, let's, um, let's not get into that because I don't know the full details, but yeah. something is is going on. There's a potential um, court case brewing, so we'll leave it there. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's not going to happen, that one. Although it, he, he feels like the thing of it's it's 2067 and Nandez is still being linked with with Leeds United. It's going to be every window, I think. Um, you're, saying, I, you're saying that that definitely won't happen. I don't think that's I don't think that's one they're, they're into. Um, I've seen Kamara at Marseille linked as well. He'd be good. Um, he would be good. I, I think they've looked at him again. I don't get the impression that they're on with that one particularly, or they're they're going to do anything there. The one deal they've done this week is 18-year-old striker from Espanol, Matteo Joseph Fernandez, who's very highly thought of actually. But we'll go into the 18 stroke 23s they've paid just under a million quid for him and Newcastle had a go didn't get him a lot of clubs linked with him he New- sounds... does Newcastle try and pay 10 million oh, well probably probably yeah yeah and 100 grand a week but he he sounds pretty interesting him I think he could be could be one to watch but clearly going into the academy rather than straight into the first so who do you think Leeds are working on then come on do you know it's very very quiet at the moment I can't answer that I genuinely don't know who it is that they're going to go for but I will be does very... Victor not get sent you his list no, no, they, they guard the list um, very, very closely. Um, it, it'll all come to pass as, as it does, but I would be very surprised if they do indeed do anything, which, you know, it's certainly been shaping up to, for, for players to come in. And, and those have been the signals we, we've been getting. I'd be very surprised if it doesn't concentrate on the midfield. I mean, it just is the, the obvious place. I was writing about Forshaw this week and saying that he is the last permanent addition to the centre of midfield, and that was January 2018, which is a long time ago. Who's the next one, Phil? Come on. I don't know. I don't know. Come on. You do know. 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 I know. You're going to try and twist my arm here. Would you like like me to make some things up? As soon as we we hit record, you're going to tell us that list. Stop hitting record. Either that, or as soon as this publishes on Friday, they're going to sign somebody. (laughs) Yeah, almost certainly. It doesn't feel like anything's kind of moving dramatically at the moment, but again, I'd be surprised if we get to the end of the month and they haven't done anything to the first I, I guess the, the victory I mean we were recording on the 6th of January the victory was what four days ago and then we've got the FA Cup this weekend which you know buys you another week doesn't it 
And then you've got West Ham away, which all things being equal, you can almost say we don't expect to come away from anything with that. It's the sort of Newcastle game you want to be targeting, isn't it, towards the middle and end of the month? Definitely, especially because Newcastle will probably be targeting that as well and will be, be wanting to get, get bodies in, in through the door. I think had the, the form been better, I'd have expected a pretty quiet window um, first team-wise. I don't think, even if the, the results pick up through the month and even if there's a massive gap at, at the end of January or towards the end of January, I don't think that'll dissuade them from doing anything if the right players come up. I think they have to start thinking longer term here as well and have to start thinking about where they're going to be in the summer. You know, are they going to do a new deal with Forshaw? I, I think they will. If they get a good midfielder in now, it leaves them better placed in the summer to, to have a, a go at that window. And as you'll find with Orta, you you're always planning one, two, three windows ahead because you've constantly got to think about what you're going to do when this player gets to this age or if you know if this player leaves somebody signs um, some of your best players how are you how are you going to react so it, as it has you know from kind of november onwards i think and actually from the end of the window where they didn't sign a, a center mid i think it, it would make total sense to get something done is Which, the potential do you think for a goalkeeper as well because every time i see class in, in the under 23s i'm kind of filled with horror at the thought he might be we're an Emelier injury away from him being our first choice well, you're, goalkeeper you're a Emelier covid test away from it you know, because that's, that's very true. Quite possibly the the more likely scenario, isn't it? It is the risk. He's been mixed as class, and I think that would be fair to say. But I've, so they've certainly not mentioned um, a goalkeeper to me. I think um, they they spent a good million plus. Who have on, they mentioned to you, Phil? And... <laughs> <laughs> the, the the thing you said I'm, in the I'm, the thing you said in the WhatsApp <laughs> message was. And the great thing is we've only got about five shows to, to get through. Oh, man. Oh, dear. I love these periods. But um, I, I I, can't see them doing a, a keeper. I think Klassen, they see Klassen as second choice. It's a gamble. No doubt about that at all. But as ever, it's less of a gamble if you get yourself into a position in the league where you've got a little bit of breathing space. Final thing in this section then, Angus Kinnear's programme notes. What do you take from that? Uh, which bit specifically? Well, I, I was fascinated by, the, by him sort of flagging up almost, having taken a week off, a well-advised week off, <laughs> to come back and then say, we've always backed Marcelo, but you have to understand that any signings that we make have to pass through his filter and be up to the standard or the requirements that he wants. That bit specifically. Because when things go bad, people will turn around and say, well, you're already getting your excuses in early. Even if it is factually correct, which, you know, from our own conversations with Angus, you get that impression that, Bielsa is incredibly exacting when it comes to transfers and signings. But saying it publicly as well, I'm putting in the programme notes, you're like, why is that there then? Who's that for? Yeah, I suppose you could say managing expectation. I mean, it, it is though just in line with a lot of what Bielsa says himself. You know, every time we've asked him about players, he, he repeats the same same mantra, which is that the, the players who would make us better would cost, you know, 20, 30 million pounds. We don't necessarily have that budget. I think we're some people, me included, have, have started to disagree with that line is that we don't necessarily feel that players who could help the team right now need to be that expensive. I think there are signings out there who could be handy and, and could be to your, to your advantage to have in, in the short term, but then it comes back to the, the argument Any we names? also always make. Well, you, I, I, was, I was expecting you to throw John Swift at me there. You mean John Swift? Um, he, is, he is on the notes, I should I, say. I, I knew he would be, yeah, people... People keep saying to me, why do you keep talking about um, about John Swift? It's because we put it on the notes every week. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should keep this going for, for the next 12 months. But then it comes back to the argument Bielsa always makes, which is that if I pad out my squad, then do I use the 23s in the same way? And, you know, we, we kind of go, go round and round in circles. 
I suppose the one thing I would say about Kinnear's notes is that the first programme at the start of the January transfer window, to not mention the fact that the window is open when it's perfectly apparent that Leeds are likely to be active in it, would not be wholly credible, really. I think you have to give some mention of it, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that signings A are going to have to fit within budget and B are going to have to fit within Bielsa's remit, you would think, because that's how it's always been. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We head to West Ham and the Olympics. Is it still the Olympic Stadium? The big shopping centre stadium? The London Stadium. Yeah, well, we'll preview the game in part three of the show, but talk more generally now about the FA Cup. I wonder, has the FA Cup ever felt less relevant to Leeds than it does right now, given what's at stake in terms of Premier League status and the money that's uh, that's up for grabs? Because I, I contrast it with my own childhood experience. Like I was at Hillsborough, for example, in 1987 when we lost to Coventry and I was only a small child, but I cried quite a lot when we lost that. It was quite upsetting after what was a really, really entertaining cup run, thinking about the victory against QPR as well, which I missed actually because I went to a swimming party <laughs> on that day. One of my great all-time regrets is that is not being at that one, but even still, a great year in the FA Cup. Cried my eyes out when we lost out in the semi-final. And yeah, I'm really, really indifferent to the FA Cup this year. Yeah, I went to see Ormsby when we did a, a big piece for the centenary at Leeds. I went to see Brendan Ormsby, who's not well, bless him, and hasn't been well for, for a long time. But that was kind of his defining moment, that header, header against QPR. And then obviously the mistake against Coventry as well, which I think weighed on him really heavily. I think Why didn't he just put it into touch? I still wonder I, all these years on. <laughs> I think Brendan being Brendan would say exactly the same. He would sit there saying, why did I not just stick me, stick me boot through that? But it was borderline an incredible season, that one, wasn't it? They were so close to that just being one of the, the best seasons in the in the club's history. And the playoff semi-final, sorry, the playoff final rather. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, but it was a different era and there is no question at all that the FA Cup as time goes on kind of drifts and drifts and drifts away from, from being the priority for Do, do you think, sorry, do you think it's coincided just with the, the growth of the Premier League? Because yeah. you can almost chart it, can't you, really, the, uh, the, the, the growth, decline of the Cup? The growth of the Premier League and also the, the value of um, European competition, particularly the Champions League, it sets the sets the hierarchy for priorities and the FA Cup doesn't feature right at the, the very top of it. Has it ever mattered less? I'm not sure it mattered particularly when Gary Monk took Leeds down to Sutton, although it mattered with hindsight because of the team he played and, and what he said about transfers afterwards. But the game itself, I don't think anybody anybody was too bothered about moving on from it. Even in Bielsa's time as, as head coach, the QPR game uh, in his, his first season when he played a, a load of kids felt very much like a footnote in what was was actually going on and, and what needed to happen. And again, at Crawley last year, preordained substitutions in that match, heavily beaten by a decent Crawley side by the standards of the league they were in, but a team lead should have should have gone and beaten. He's never won an FA Cup tie, Bielsa. And 
I would imagine that sits particularly well with him, but this is a difficult a difficult game. And you're right, the season's not been in, in great shape. The squad's not in great shape, fitness-wise, either. And I sort of feel deep down that if either club were kind of targeting this as a, you know, if it has a potential target for the season, it would be more likely to be West Ham than Leeds. I feel like our record in the Cup somehow makes it irrelevant every year. Just because within my lifetime, I was I was too young for the uh, the 80s one you mentioned, but losing to Wolves in 97, 98. That really hurt. That was, I, I, I think that still fuels the uh, disdain for Don Goodman. Quite possibly. And Keith Curl. I've not forgotten that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Snarling in Hasselbank's face. But from that, we lost to Warnock in 2003. And we were with six rounds. We weren't even we weren't even close to the final, particularly. But that felt like the last chance we ever had of of actually doing anything, having a team that was vaguely capable of going far in the competition as well. And since then, we've basically been terrible. So every year we've had we've had some fun in it, like obviously the famous victory at Man U, beating um, well drawing it at White Hart Lane and stuff. But since then, it's basically felt like a competition we're we're in to get through a round or two at the most, and mainly just get out of the way. So I don't know. It feels like I've I'm not, bear in mind, I'm not a young man. I basically have no, I have no fond memories of the FA Cup particularly. But then even then, I've only got, like you say, that that Wolves year when it felt like maybe, just maybe. But then I also look at what happened in 1996 in the League Cup and how scarred that I am from that, getting absolutely pumped at Wembley by by Villa. It's not for me that. I've not, I don't think I've enjoyed any single Wembley trip. No, I mean, I, I've had the Manchester United trip. Obviously, that was... Um, that was by a mile, the peak in, in the FA Cup in all the time that I've I've covered Leeds. But mixed in about that, you've got Histon, you've got Rochdale, you've got Newport, you've got Sutton United. It's been it's been pretty grim. I mean, I went back to to look this morning at Histon um, and found that they're now in the Northern Premier League Division One Midlands, which is level eight in the pyramid. I mean, that was just the most grim day ever. Can you remember who scored the winning goal? He was called. Was he called Matt something? I'd be more likely to be able to guess his occupation because they always frame was, it around he's a greengrocer. He was a, or a, it was a postman. He was a postman. Oh, yeah. I remember it that. was it was Matt Langston, Matthew Langston. <laughs> he's always the postman who delivers, isn't it? He, who at, is, the, at the back post. Now retired after a stint with AFC Dunstable. Um, <sighs> so that was a that was a real highlight. Although the thing about the old Trafford game was that it was it was enough that to kind of sustain you through quite a few seasons where. You know that would come around the, the anniversary. Even now, people still still look back at at that. I, I did a, a big interview with Beckford when we we first launched the Athletic, and we were talking about that. And one of the best stories was that his his brother Travis had asked for Ryan Giggs' shirt afterwards. So Beckford had said to him, "Look, I'll do my best." So afterwards, he went up to Giggs and said, "Can I have have your shirt?" And he said, "Giggs looked like he was about to say yes. You know, you can you can you can have it." And then Ferguson appeared and said to all the players, "No shirts." Everybody in the dressing room, um, you're not to speak to any of these Leeds players now, slammed the door and, and did what, what Ferguson does. And Beckford just said, part of me was disappointed for my brother, but part of me just thought this makes the whole day even more yeah. sweeter seeing this, seeing tantrums in the... You pissed um, them off to that extent. Tantrums in the, in the tunnel. But I also went, and one of the guys who played that day was Michael Doyle. And I went and caught up with Doyle and we, we watched the game back. I just wanted to get his thoughts on it. I think it was 10 years on to see what he made of it. And the thing that struck us was how well Leeds played in that game. It wasn't like a kind of smash and grab game where everything just goes wrong for Manchester United, even though they didn't play well. Leeds, the structure of Leeds playing, the, the chance they created and the performance generally, really good. I mean, that team was absolutely at the height of its powers at that point. It was top of league one by a mile, loads of confidence, loads of good form. It, it started to 
kind of come off the rails. I was going to say ruined it. <laughs> That's the thing with Leeds, yeah. isn't it? Like, so you've got a cup victory like that, but the caveat and, uh, is always... And what? then before you know it, you're losing 2-0 yeah. down at Exeter and, and Beckford's putting in a transfer request. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of kind of typical. Um, but they did, you're right. They, they managed that game so well that day. That's, that is my override. I've got well, two memories from it. One is that, is how well they managed the, the day itself. I mean, you were there, Michael, weren't you? Which we'll come on to in a minute. But I look it back at it now and it's talking about the passage of time and the, the failure to do anything in the, anything in the Cups. I can remember because my daughter was, she would uh, be, what, 18 months about at that point, maybe two, three, whatever she was, she was young. And I made her cry like by cheering, you know, when I celebrated, when Beckford put it in, the roar was so deep and voluminous that um, she burst into tears because she was just a toddler at that point. She's a teenager now. And that's how little yeah. FA Cup joy there, we've had. There was such a buzz as well, you know, amongst the players. I always remember that, that great press conference where we went to interview Naylor and somebody said to him, if any of your mates asked you to, you know, and Naylor just interjected and said, what, smash Gary Neville? To which we, <laughs> we all said, well, yeah. And he said, oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I've, I've had loads of, loads of texts like that. I don't think I really expected them to, to do anything over there. I thought I expected that Man United would have the, you know, would have what they needed to get through that tie. But there was, there was just this sort of kind of quiet optimism. And rather than any any fear of going over there you could tell that everybody was desperate to get going and desperate to get into it it was a great day I think shedding the fear is one of those important things that Leeds probably need to do with, with some of the fixtures that we've faced since we've come up you know like playing the actual the game rather than the occasion yeah um, I think so I, I don't think that was too much of a problem over 38 games last season it was a problem in isolated incidents like Old Trafford away for example, I think more the case this season that they had just been heavily outclassed by the better teams, you know, particularly City. I mean, that was that was a, a hard watch. Um, if you were looking at Leeds, it was a very kind of pleasing on the eye watch if you were watching City because they were extremely good. But I mean, I think the problem for Leeds in the FA Cup is that they, they have drawn a lot of what you what everybody calls banana skins and slipped on them with almost consistent brilliance. I spoke to Matt Smith about the Rochdale defeat, which was... I wouldn't say the beginning of the end for McDermott, but it was a day where it was a day where you came away wondering if everything was right. The performance was wrong. the 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 team didn't didn't settle at all. They got absolutely hammered from the by the away end after the game. And you remember that that came a week before the the pasting down the six 0 down at Hillsborough. And Smith said after the Rochdale game, it was really quiet in the dressing room because everybody was quite shocked that they played that way and and that they'd been beaten by Rochdale. And you know, it was just a, a kind of stunned group. Whereas he said after Hillsborough, there was a lot said in the dressing room because I think that was one of those games and one of those results where everybody was just furious at the end of it and everybody wanted to, to kill each other. But yeah, Rochdale was a real high point as well. <laughs> that was on telly, wasn't it, as well? I can remember it. I, well, I was at the game, so I can't yeah. remember um, whether it was. But, um, oh, jo- oh, joy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not as much fun as the Old Trafford one. I presume you had a good day out anyway. It was great. I mean, as you can imagine, my levels of optimism are generally pretty low, but it's fair to say I didn't expect anything, but I think Phil is right in that there was a, there was so much momentum going into that game. We were we were absolutely running away with the league. We'd we went into it off the back of a, a late winner at Stockport, didn't we? I think That's we right. we, yeah. were, we scored a couple in the last few minutes, and it just felt like that that whole season to that point, it felt like nothing could go wrong more or less. I think we'd lost at Millwall was the standard the standard defeat we'd had, but otherwise, other than that, everything had just gone so smoothly. We just kept digging out results, and it did give you that slight feeling we might do it but then equally turned upon the day and saw the team they put out was really pretty strong there were a few players rested but they were rested for you know the like Brazilian internationals and things and you thought well there's probably not a lot of chance here but I think I went into that thinking if I get a moment to celebrate 
that would be good. Like if we get if we get to score the opener or an equaliser or just a little bit of a moment where you can lean over and stick two fingers up at, at Old Trafford, yeah. that would be nice. But the fact we scored so early, I just thought, well, this is good. I've had that. And sure enough, they can now go on and win 3-1. But it was just as the game crept nearer the end. But with being Man United, there was still that feeling of, well, 92 minutes in or whatever, this isn't over. They're, they're still going to score here, Ferg- obviously. Fergie time, yeah. Exactly. They're obviously going to still equalise. And then as it got nearer and nearer, we're going to do it this might this <laughs> there might was, happen there was that great um, video clip of supporter in the away end sticking his fingers up towards one part of the of the, the home end and then this young kid next to him who I assume is his son because he was basically a, a spitting image of him but about 30 years younger doing exactly <laughs> the same <laughs> you know one of those days when it's a, a free for all and you can you can do what you like but interestingly they sent Mo- uh, Rennie Moylenstein to the Stock- Stockport game and he, he sat through that and, and I remember hearing him say to somebody um, at one point they're, they're good these you know he said, they, they know what they're doing and it'll be a difficult game for us and it, and it was It'd be nice to have another day like that, not in the context of League One versus Premier League. I never, ever want to return to that, I should say, very, very clearly. But a a day of glory. But the only way you kind of get that in the Premier League is either going to be against one of the so-called Big Six or at Wembley itself. And that feels like a million miles away. It always does this Wembley, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously Leicester did it last season, but even that feels like it's been a a long, long road for them. I know they had the the Premier League title win, but they've built and built and built towards this. And it it hasn't been a, a kind of overnight thing. I wrote for a separate book rather than mine, which I won't I won't tout again. About two years ago, I wrote a chapter for it with Mick Jones, big interview with him, and he was talking about the, the 72 Cup Final, Centenary Cup Final. And it was really obvious how big an occasion that was for them and, and how much they took from it, even though he ended with his, you know, his elbow dislocated, broken, whatever it was. He told a funny story about going up the, the stairs afterwards and it was Norman Hunter who was helping him helping him get up to the top. And the Duke of Edinburgh was there with the Queen because it was a centenary cup final, so they were presenting the trophy. And Jones, by that point, was incredibly pale and white and looked like he was going to fall over in a huge amount of pain, clearly uncomfortable. Duke of Edinburgh says to him, are you okay? And he said that Norman Hunter just leaned over to him and said, is he fucking joking? (laughs) (laughs) So they took their medals and, and off they went. But it seems, I mean, that is so long ago now. That's like 50, 50 years ago. And it's astonishing, really, that Leeds have been, OK, they've, they've had this long stint out of the Premier League, but they've been a competitive side at a very high level of English football for a lot of years. They've never really, that aside, and, and 87, they haven't really made a scratch on this competition at all. It's, it's really odd. Has it, has it made us too defeatist, do you think, when it comes to the Cup? You tell me. I mean, I think Victor Otto spoke about it, didn't he, about the way that Leeds fans are kind of, uh, there was a, almost a cloud over us to a certain extent, where people will write off our chances of doing anything, like even if we do X, we'll only blow it at Y kind of um, attitude. I mean, he spoke about that around the promotion, didn't he? And I, I think there is a certain amount of that. But then I do look at like my dad's generation who saw probably the best team in the world at that time in Revy's Leeds. So to still be around now as a lot of them are and to see the decline that we went through, you, can, you understand it, don't you, to a certain extent, why football fans can grow cynical Grow cynical, but also be realistic about what you're going for. So when you're stuck in the EFL for as long as Leeds have been, it, it just becomes all about promotion. And I don't think Otter or anybody else at Leeds would pretend that the FA Cup has really figured in the grand plan for the Bielsa era. It was all about building the team, building the academy, getting out of the championship and getting back to this level, which which they have. When you get into a position that 
say, Leicester are in, I think it then becomes far more feasible to say, you know, the old arguments about just play the kids in the cup and, you know, get rid of the cup so we don't have to worry about that later in the season. It's far easier to say, no, do you know what? Concentrate on this competition because actually, if Leicester play as well as they can, which they did last season, then Leicester can win it. I don't think Leeds are there yet and I I think it'll be probably sometime yet before you get a a really concerted run in the FA Cup. But I felt, and I I wrote this after the, the League Cup defeat, either last season or, or this season, but I think it was last season after the, the whole City game, the club are definitely due a decent, decent cup run, better than what they had in the League Cup. I know, I know a difficult draw in the end down at Arsenal, but they are due a decent run of sorts. It feels like a long time. Well, it goes back to Warnock, really, doesn't it, in the, the League Cup. For the last time, it looked like they were, they were about to get anywhere decent in it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Well, that cup run starts on Sunday, doesn't it? In Stratford. When does it end? <laughs> on Sunday. <yeah. laughs> no, we're not We're not being defeatist. I mean, look, I'd, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, it's a proper stick your finger in the air thing, is this, the yeah. FA Cup. Because we, we are recording ahead of Bielsa's press conference, which is on Friday. So, so we don't really know what sort of side is going to feature just yet. We don't know if there's going to be people returning from injuries, how close Bamford is. So what what are we expecting to, to find then on Sunday? He's tended, hasn't he, to, to field weaker teams in the FA Cup and, and in the League Cup. It, it's hard to know, really, because he wouldn't be feeling at all that Leeds are safe and sound um, with eight points over the, the bottom three. It'll be too tight for, for his liking, and he's not that way inclined. He'll also know that the only thing he has to deliver this season is another season in the Premier League next year. But he has a track record, uh, clubs he's managed, news couple of Libertadores and then obviously at Athletic Bilbao as well run to the final of the Copa del Rey and, and to the final of the Europa League he's not a guy who disregards cup competitions I think he's he's taken them less seriously with his team selection even though he wouldn't see it like this the team he, he played at QPR for example was highly likely to lose that game and did and I think the way that the team was structured and put together and changed down at Crawley meant that there was a much higher chance of an upset there than there would have been if he'd played his strongest lineup. but I understand understood why he didn't at that point and why he wanted to, to protect some players. Although the odd thing about last season was that Leeds were so well placed at the turn of the year that that might have been as good an opportunity as any to have had a crack at the FA Cup properly. But, you know, priorities again, and, and I, I do get that. I think Leeds will be fairly strong at West Ham. I don't think he'll want to knock them out of their stride particularly by after Burnley having two weeks in which some of his, his first teamers don't play. But he will surely make some changes and, and maybe, maybe a chance for a few fringe players. Archie Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Archie, I think, has gone beyond the point now where he can break Peter Lorimer's record. It had to be Arsenal or bust, but part of me is quite pleased, really, that Lorimer's 
record didn't get broken in a pretty dismal four-one defeat. Well, he was thrown on with the team three-nil down. I did look it up though. He, he can still be the youngest player to play in an FA Cup final. So, oh, well, there you go. So there you go. go. We'll, this we'll is, go for that then. This is um, this, this is, is the year. year. But I mean, it's astonishing that he's involved to that extent anyway, and involved in in on merit, if that makes sense. I don't think he would be on the bench were it not for all the injuries and so on. But it's not as if they've literally wandered into the academy and said, "Look, does anybody fancy being on the bench <laughs> this weekend?" You know, he he's kind of next in line in in that sense. So I don't think no, I don't don't think we'll see him him start. He may well be in the squad, although I suspect possibly not. But I think it'll be a reasonably strong team. I do. It's quite interesting, isn't it? What what does the playing West Ham two weeks on the trot, the same fixture twice, what what sort of a bearing will that have on on the psychological approach? I mean, it won't change anything. I'm just it's just an interesting um, little quirk of fate, isn't it? It's very unusual. Yeah, it's really unusual to to be doing this and and basically the same kickoff time on the same day of the week, seven days apart. The saving grace for West Ham is that they only have to deal with nine thousand Leeds fans <laughs> in one of them rather than rather than both. And you would assume on that basis that the FA Cup tie will be far more of an event than the league game itself. But I don't know. I mean, does does the league game matter more? Oh, I think miles, miles more. Which is I said on over on our podcast, if there is one reason why we could win the FA Cup tie on Sunday. It's because we've got the league game the week after and it will raise our expectations of going there the week after and winning and then not being able to do it. <laughs> yeah, and, and as I was saying earlier, the best results this season have come against the teams at the bottom end of the, the table, which West Ham are not one of. They've had a really good season. I know they've had a little lull recently, but I, I heard Moyes talking after that and saying, I thought he was right actually, he said, you know, everybody is kind of entitled to a little dip in form. And they, they were getting a, a fair amount of criticism, West Ham. And, and again, I look at them in fifth in the table and I think, <laughs> Not really sure, not really sure what anybody's expecting. But as soon as you start to creep into those positions, everybody looks for it and everybody thinks, oh, you know, the sky's the limit. There's no ceiling. Um, but there is a ceiling and there's always a ceiling for most clubs with, with a few exceptions. It feels to me like it's their tie to win, really, if they if they go relatively full strength. It was close between, very close between Leeds and West Ham at Ellen Road. I was kind of on the side of the fence that felt that Leeds were Probably worth a point, but actually, if any side deserved to win that game in the end, it, it was West Ham. It's a it's a difficult tie for a third round one this. But I suppose the upside of the, the Burnley win going into this is that it does let Leeds play with a, a bit less tension and a bit more freedom. Bit of a pain in the backside that there are either no trains going in or limited trains, isn't well, it? Are you, are you going down for this? I mean, gets in at quarter to one. Um, so we'll just jump in a, a taxi. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say it's four hours from York to London this weekend. It's just... It's been a real eye-opener, actually, to what it's like having to travel to games by train because it's in- incredibly difficult. And for all that I'm, you know, up for saving the planet, I would suggest to people that they take the car. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I mean, like, what? It's, it's all well and good promoting trains and everything else, but if they're, if they're no use, they're, they're no use. So I, would, I, I expect to get there. There might be a, a bit of a a bit of a fine cut, but I also expect them to be absolutely rammed. I mean, 9,000 going to West Ham is going to be fun and games for the people who are managing the stadium. And what, uh, what changes do you expect then? You said you, some youth, younger players might get a go. Do you think maybe Somerville? I know he, he got a hat-trick for the under-23s. Possibly. It's really difficult to call. Um, I think without without hearing Bielsa speak tomorrow, because he'll probably be pretty open about that, but what he's going to do, I, I don't know where he'll, where he'll be at. I think a lot of us kind of felt going to Arsenal um, in the League Cup earlier this season that it might be a really weak team that was was put out there. And in the end, it wasn't. There were some youngsters who played, like Drami, for for example, and he, and he was asked afterwards, you know, is, is this a kind of bit of a change of policy from you? And, and his explanation was, 
that he had lots of first team players who needed minutes. So he played them. You know, that was the, the kind of thinking behind it. So genuinely, it be, would be hard to guess. I just don't think he's going to go there and play a... He's not going to go there, I don't think, and play a team that has very little chance. No, not going to do the same as against um, a Crawley. The wholesale sure. and pre-plan changes. That Surely was, that not. Was, that, and was, I, that was one thing that weirded me out about Crawley. Was yeah. That he just, he, he'd got the changes in mind already, which you understood to an extent, but it didn't in any way deal with the ebb and flow of the game, did it? But it, he's not going to do that. It's something you're doing in a... In a Reserves game, isn't it? That we're just you're just getting the fitness of players right, and it's regardless of what's going on, on the pitch. I felt there was a little bit of that in the Arsenal game earlier this season as well, the League Cup game. Um, that was the, the kind of thrust of the piece afterwards was that the substitutions didn't work, and they seemed like they had been almost pre-planned. They were most certainly pre-planned at, at Crawley, but again, they were trying to get some minutes into Liam Cooper. They weren't wanting to push certain players too far. I just don't think in those circumstances you can necessarily get away with that. A little bit like I always remember somebody on the, the at Leeds saying to me after the Newport defeat, you can't really go to Newport. This was Christensen's time as head coach. You can't really go to Newport with a side like that and expect not to have a bit of a difficult afternoon. You might get away with it and you might win, but it is slightly taking liberties against the side who know what they're about on their own pitch and, and are up against a Leeds team that's a bit kind of makeshift because it's been thrown together. Your Rente will play, you, uh, you would imagine, with him suspended from the league game. Yes, I would imagine so. Him and Roberts are free to play this weekend. Red cards apply to all competitions. Yellow cards apply to the competitions that they're accrued in. So they are banned for the Premier League game at West Ham. Someone tells me Roberts might not be fit though because he didn't look in good shape when he came off um, against Burnley. So we will we'll find out again when we speak to Bielsa. Uh, any debuts that we need to know about for new signings or? <laughs> John, John Swift wandering out, out the tunnel um, at, at uh, midday on Thursday as we are recording I would be surprised <laughs> 11th hour signing that would be great <laughs> in terms of wrapping up news from other stuff then presumably we're going to face another FA charge due to the bottle chucking against Loughton at, for Burnley I think it's possible yes um, and even if there's no charge they will, they will certainly have a look at it especially because it's not been the, the first example of that this season I felt like Sean Dyche was pretty measured afterwards in saying that the atmosphere was great on Sunday and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of one person, um, which is not to say there was only one one missile one coming ac- on, one on the pitch. Person. But one, yeah, no, that, that would, one accurate be, shot. would be right. Kind of two things here. One is that you you just can't throw missiles and if you get caught doing it, you know what's going to happen. Um, there'll be consequences for it. The club will get fined and everything else. And you have to say that no amount of provocation to a point justifies you doing it. But there is a weird trend, Ellen Road, this season of opposition players doing that deliberately in front of the cop. You've seen it in that corner. You saw it in the opposite corner with Sergi Canos against Brentford. Um, it is provocative and it does feel to me like it's being done purposely. I don't really understand why. It's almost as if there's a WhatsApp group <laughs> somewhere where people are saying, oh, see if you score at Ellen Road, get it, into the cop. Is it a response to, A, the volume of the Leeds crowd, so they feel naturally inclined to want to rub it in your Pro- face, probably, which yeah. you understand to a certain extent, but also players milking it more, having spent a year playing without crowds? Maybe, maybe. It would be quite quite interesting to to know, actually, if, if, if that's the case. I, I think it probably is more to do with the atmosphere being as good as it is and you know, a goal like Cornet's just silencing everything straight away. But I think that, that, you know, two sets of people have to take responsibility for this. The crowd not to do it, but also players not to goad crowds in the way that is going to prompt a reaction. I mean, if you look at Rodri after his goal for City down at Arsenal, if you do that to a home end, what are you expecting to happen apart from people to react? And it is fine saying people shouldn't react. And, and 
the Burnley situation was not like that. It was not quite the same. I mean, Rodri, I mean, he was literally a foot, a couple of feet away from the Arsenal fans in the front row with his shirt off. Roaring you, in their faces. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you're you absolutely asking for it. Um, so perhaps everybody needs to grow up, as my mother would say. How are you, uh, how are you celebrating a goal at Easter Road? I probably should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on, do. In, in the full, stands, full which... Hey, shirt in, off. In the... In the stands, which um, leads me on to another point, which is that we've had a, a statement from Leeds today saying that parents and guardians of kids who run on the pitch at full time, as has become a bit of a trend Ellen Road now, are going to be hit with a one-year ban from the stadium, which I think is something well worth bearing in mind for anybody who takes kids to the game. I mean, if ever you were going to do it, do it when we were playing under Warnock. You know, send them on, get a year ban. You don't have to go then, do you, for a year? <laughs> but I mean, a year is a year is absolutely no joke. And... You could say that it's all a bit harmless and, you know, Leeds have said in the statement, and it is kind of fair point this, that the the pitch is the red zone, you know, so it is a COVID protected area and, and that applies not only to the pitch, but the tunnel area and the dressing rooms and everything else. They're trying to keep everybody separate, but there are security implications as well. And I know it's only kids who are coming on and to a point it feels like you're ruining everybody's fun, but it has become a bit habitual now. It's happened more than once. It feels as if, if you didn't do something about it or say something about it, it could genuinely happen every week. I did laugh though at Dallas on Sunday, trying desperately to get the kid off the pitch before anybody could yeah. lay, lay their hands on him. I thought, oh, bless him. So there. One of the kids who ran on for Dallas nearly two footed him as well. He slipped as he as he approached him. I thought, if, if that kid had broken Stuart Dallas's ankle, there'd have been an invasion of 36 yeah, We'd have had people. to go on and do a Vinnie Jones, wouldn't we? Slice that child down. No, but it's funny because I, I called them kind of a misery guts earlier in the season for, uh, I think they handed out like a, it was like a 12-week ban or something like that. It yeah. would have covered about three games. But I also have now, you know, looking back on it, realised they were right to it's try got and clamp down. Because it, it it yeah. one, one begets another, doesn't it? It's really difficult, these circumstances, because you don't want to be seen as a killjoy yeah. and you don't want to ruin people's fun. But this is what tends to happen. Stuff tends to snowball. And as with signs in the stand saying, can I have your shirt? And I know some people don't like that, but there's actually, there's nothing... There's nothing incendiary about that. You know, that is fine. If you want to do it, that's that's totally up to you. But these things do develop. So you see that all the time now because you've seen it elsewhere. So if you have kids who are running on and asking Dallas for his shirt and they get the shirt, then what's going to happen? More and more are going to want to do it. And more and more people are going to feel that because it's kids, it's no problem. And, and the club will just turn a blind eye, but clearly not. I'd have a ban for the signs as well. Yeah. That's how much I, I, of a misery I, was, I am. I was going to say, I bet Michael would ban them, but I thought I'd be kind <laughs> to him. Who was it? It was one of the England players, wasn't it? It was Bellingham it? who did it. Jude yeah. Bellingham, yeah. Was it a San Marino? Was it maybe that away fixture? It was one of the smaller nations, wasn't it? When uh, he went and handed his shirt to the person about three feet to the right <laughs> who didn't have the sign. <laughs> but bless her, to see the girl in tears after she got Ailing's shirt, at least you knew like it actually mattered to her as opposed to just... I mean, I have seen some signs they look like they've been kind of quickly written in the concourse and on the off chance that you can get Sadio Mane's shirt if you're, if you're lucky. Um, that's not quite the same thing as a kid sitting at home making the effort and then busting into tears when it actually happens. What do you think of, uh, of grown men and women getting camera phones out to photograph Cristiano Ronaldo at Old Trafford? And then that- delete, deleting the videos. Every free kick, get the phone out. Delete that one. <laughs> oh, he's hit the wall again. <laughs> it's, um, it's abysmal, isn't it? I mean... I'm not saying you'd never see it in the South Stand, to use the South Stand as an example. Maybe there are isolated instances, and you do see videos from the South Stand, so clearly there are people in there who from time to time video things. But I see instances where you'll get goals, and and not picking purely on Old Trafford here, because it happens at quite a lot of grounds. I mean, do. But, well, since you've invited me to, I (laughs) I see instances of 
players scoring, running to the corner flag, and there doesn't seem to be anybody celebrating. Mm. You see photos, and there's nobody celebrating in the stands. Everybody's standing with camera phones of, uh, to get a picture of one of the most photographed people <laughs> in the world anyway. You can always um, find pictures of him, can't you? Well, the tend to Mainly be, on his Instagram. There tend to be a few pictures of Ronaldo out there. His own yeah. house would be full of them, I imagine. Yeah, um, and believe it or not, there are pitch side photographers as well who will be will be taking better pics than you generally. Although not strictly true, because somebody got a pic of Dallas celebrating. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but they said it's like a Renaissance painting. This absolutely brilliant. It was. It was like the it's like the Last Supper. But yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of quite a few modern things in football. Take signs and phones off people. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm all for it. It's the same. But we've said before, it's like it's the same as going to a concert and pointing your phone at the stage and not actually watching the concert. And you're never probably going to watch it again and it'll sound awful. Just enjoy the concert yeah. and just have a nice memory. It's fine. Yeah. Don't buy NFTs. Um, <laughs> you know, if, I, if I ever buy an NFT, my wife has permission to shoot me. <laughs> As a Scotsman, I know we're playing to the stereotype here, but yeah, I cannot imagine you were handing over your heart. Imagine you, you were tweeting out pictures of Bookfast on New Year's Eve. Uh, handing over your yeah, hard- the point being that Buckfast costs about four quid. <laughs> <laughs> your hard-earned cash for some uh, for some JPEGs. I mean, uh, the one that John Terry put out was seemed to be a picture of a monkey or an ape or something like that, and I just don't see the point. Like what? <laughs> it's bored and, ape. And, it's, it's a theme. It's a theme, isn't it? That the one NFT artist does. Yeah. yeah, but you can copy it, and I know it's not officially on on the blockchain. It's not officially yours. It belongs belongs to somebody else. You don't but own as, that. As I well, saw, some well, I do. As I saw somebody say. <laughs> to someone who was banging on about NFTs, can you get a girlfriend on the blockchain? Because it might be a good idea if you can. Um, I mean, look, each their own. If you're into NFTs, that's that's fine. But I think I think that boat sailed for me. <laughs> Brilliant. We've uh, we've gone some way off piece here, haven't we? But it's, <laughs> what was this about originally? I just, got I'll be honest, I've just time. tried to rile you for as much as I possibly could over this episode because it's the first one of the right. I think you were trying to avoid answering how you'd celebrate at Easter Road. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. That's right, yeah. And, and in the end, I was moaning about NFTs. Go Marvellous. Out, go out and buy an NFT. Right, great. <laughs> we'll wrap it up there then. At the Phil Hay Show, if you want to say hello to us um, on Twitter and you can subscribe to The Athletic using our discount theathletic.com forward slash leads pod we'll see you next week the Phil Hay Show 